rock and our redeemer. You are the salt of the earth. That's got to be one of the most popular phrases from the Bible. I could ask nearly anyone on the street about that phrase, and they'd say, yes, it's familiar. The funny thing is, I'm not actually sure what it means. Think about it. I, so when I, 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 I go into a school that was uh, very big on classical education, so... Uh, as I was talking with Greg earlier, I took, I took Latin, uh, five years of Latin as a kid, and they drilled into us ancient history. And when I think of salt and the earth, uh, I think of the Third Punic War, where Rome was fighting against Carthage, and at the end of the Third Punic War, in order to end their, in order to end Carthage, what they did was they plowed up the ground around Carthage and they put salt in it, so that no one could ever grow crops around Carthage ever again. They wanted Carthage to be wiped from the face of the earth, and so they salted the earth. That's not a good thing. (laughs) Now, when you you hear salt of the earth, you think also of people who are like good, solid stock. Like, that person's salt of the earth. Humble, kind, like, boom, salt of the earth. Does that make sense? Does that seem what that's what Jesus is saying? In my confusion, I decided to turn to books. Something I often do. And in this case, went to uh, biblical commentaries. Surely, uh, there'll be an answer here about what this really means. And as I was flipping through one commentary, they had a list, no joke, of ten different things that Jesus could have meant uh, in the first century of the common era. Turns out that salt was, was given with offerings, was commanded to be given with offerings, burnt offerings. So perhaps if you're, a salt, you're the salt of the earth, maybe you're yourself an offering given up to God. Uh, the Old Testament talks about a so-called covenant of salt, covenant of salt with God. If you are the salt of the earth, maybe you're a part of this covenant with God. Elisha, the great prophet Elisha in 2 Kings, uses salt as a miracle to purify water. Elsewhere, salt is seen as a purifying element. And as Naomi mentioned, uh, they used to actually rub little babies with salt, um, which kind of confuses me. They don't do that anymore. Pickled babies. <laughs> salt obviously can be a condiment. That's something that we're all quite familiar with. Uh, salt can be used as a preservative. All these things were you know, mentioned in Scripture. Salt can be used as a preservative. Um, Salt is something that in agricultural societies is a necessity of life. If you're a hunter-gatherer, you could just drink the blood of the animals that you kill and get salt that way. But for most people who rely on a grain diet, they need to supplement their diet with salt. It's a necessity. So you're the salt of the earth. You're like the necessity of the earth. Maybe. Salt is also a sign of loyalty, apparently. Uh, the scriptures that has different situations where, where when people eat salt in another's presence... It means that you're loyal to that person. So if you're the salt of the earth, maybe you're the ones who are loyal to God. Salt also, as Naomi mentioned, is a sign of peace and friendship. People will bring it as a gift uh, quite frequently. Uh, Salt could be used as uh, a seasoning of conversation, used in a sort of metaphorical way. We see that in scripture. Salt also in other ancient texts is associated with wisdom. So what on earth does this mean? All the above? And we translate it to the, to the present-day context. I was thinking, uh, it's January right now. I'm from Boston. 
salt. It's February now. Oh my goodness, it's February. That's right. It shows how out of it I am. It's like when it, it's like when it turns from 2016 to 2017, and you're like, oh wow, I forgot to change the number on the calendar. Okay, it's February. It's February, and up in Boston in February, salt, of course, is used to melt the ice on the roads. So if you're from up north and you think of salt this time of year, you're like, yes, this is a safety thing. Salt, in, but also it corrodes your car, so it's also corrosive. Again, I worked in two ice cream parlors, and as Naomi mentioned, salt is used in the making of ice cream. Maybe you're the salt of the earth. You're like the creamy goodness part in the center, and the salt just, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm stretching things a bit. I even went out, I, I took this so far, I went out and I bought a copy of Mark Kurlansky's book, Salt, on the history of salt. Um, and he mentions at the beginning that uh, one of Sigmund Freud's students uh, wrote an entire essay on salt where he's like, our love of salt actually has to do with uh, sublimated sexual desires. I thought that might stretch it a little bit too far. <laughs> Somehow I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind. Salt keeps colors bright. Uh, it can be a gift uh, to bring to the home. Be the salt of the earth. What do you think it means? Now, for me, I, I can't... Whenever I think of salt, I think of, I think of how much it flavors my food. I think of a little bit of salt being able to savor so much that a dish without salt really does taste just bland. And it's amazing how just a little pinch of salt... Sometimes you don't eat, Sometimes salt is used in recipes and you don't taste the salt, but it has an effect of making the rest of the flavors jump out. A little bit of salt can make all the difference in flavoring that which is around it. I like that interpretation as much because the next line is, you are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. There is this essence that Jesus is talking to his disciples and to those who are gathered in the Sermon on the Mount, that they are meant to go out and flavor those around them. Last week I was reading uh, the the novel, the youth novel, Witch of Blackbird Pond. And uh, Witch of Blackbird Pond is a novel that's set in the late 17th century in Connecticut, in Wethersfield, Connecticut. And the author does a great job of evoking what it would have been like to have been a Puritan, uh, a Congregationalist back in the 17th century. Now, I, I, I've read about Congregationalists before this time, read about Puritans, but the one thing that struck me reading it through was... For the Puritans living back then, the only text they had was the Bible. You get up in the morning, you work all day long, and at night, the only thing you have to read is the Bible. As one of my professors in divinity school said, your average sodbuster in Connecticut in the 17th and 18th century knew his Bible a whole lot better than even your most ardent evangelical today. Because it was the only book they had, everyone was required to be able to read, and they read it every day. And I thought, how different is that from our situation today? If there's one thing about today in society, we have this surfeit of words. There's words everywhere. Uh, when I sit down, you know, 25 years ago, you might have gotten the, the, the Houston Chronicle newspaper. Uh, today, you go online and you read five or six news sources in a day. One to another. Uh, you, turn on the, you turn on the news and there's just, or you turn on the TV and there's constantly words coming at you. Everything online, words coming at you. You can't, the, the, the big issue today, unlike in the 17th century, the big issue today is how do you actually have words that jump out, words that actually have meaning, words that you remember, words that are salty. Need for salty words. Can you think of a phrase that sticks in your head? A quip 
some incident. I'm someone who likes politics, and I think back to uh, there's a famous incident in the 1984 presidential election. Ronald Reagan was showing signs of forgetfulness on the campaign trail. Walter Mondale and the Democrats were accusing him of being too old to be president. And famously, Reagan gets up at their, their next debate and starts off by saying, you know, I, I, I know that age has been an issue in this election, and I want to say right here that I don't hold uh, my opponent's youth and inexperience against him. <laughs> One of these great lines. Uh, there's a, the chaplain at Yale in the 1960s and 70s, who then later was the minister at Riverside Church in New York City, William Sloan Coffin, was famous for his salty lines. He actually sat down and he would practice them at night. He would, he would he'd have a journal where he'd keep down and try and create these witty lines, these lines that would stick in people's minds because he knew how important it was. My favorite line of Coffin's is when someone asked him, he was having an interview and someone said, well, you know, uh, religion is just a crutch. And Coffin responded, well, of course it's a crutch. What makes you think you don't limp? The power of a good phrase to flavor everything around it. What about with FCC? What do you think are some things that you could say about FCC that would stick in people's minds? They go, oh, that's what that place is about. FCC is a place that is LGBT affirming. In this day and age, that's one of those things that will stick in people's minds. There aren't many churches in this city that are that way. That's a salty phrase. We believe that science and religion are not contradictory but can work together in tandem. We believe that we're saved by trying to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. When we think about God, we, we intentionally try and distance ourselves from God as the old white man in the sky who sort of intervenes uh, sometimes vindictively in the world, and instead God as an eternal presence, or perhaps the ground of being, that's what, that, that which gives us life. These types of things are salty phrases that can be used in talking about FCC. What are some other things that you can think of? What about people? Who are the most memorable people that you've met? Close your eyes, you think about some of the people that jump out in your head. Maybe they were people who were very charismatic. Maybe they were very attractive. Um, maybe they were funny. I'm sure if I met Donald Trump either as president or before, he would stick in my mind. <laughs> but the more I thought about this, the more I contemplated who are the people that stick with me, the more I realized that for me, the people who stick with me the most are the people who have deep convictions. Someone who's funny or charismatic, you see them all the time, and frankly, sometimes they go in, in, in and out, in and out, oh, one more person uh, who's there as an entertainer. But what about people who actually have strong convictions? For me, those seem to be the people that keep sticking in my mind. They seem to be compelling. I think back to, again, the early church one of the famous phrases of Tertullian about the early church is that the martyrs were the blood of the, or the, the, blood of the martyrs uh, was the foundation of the church. 
that there was this notion in the early church that when people saw people willing to give up their lives to the faith, there was something about that conviction that was just compelling. It's like that person's figured out something that I haven't. And I want to learn about it. Think about someone like Mahatma Gandhi. Gandhi was not particularly charismatic in terms of as, as a speaker. He wasn't a particularly effective writer either. I mean, he wrote a lot, but I wouldn't say that he was known for his effective writing. Here's someone who's one of the most transformative individuals, the most memorable individuals of the entire 20th century. What's his defining characteristic? His conviction. Conviction rooted in his sense of God, his sense of the eternal, which helped transform Indian society. People found that compelling. This past week, I got an email in my inbox uh, from a friend in Iowa informing me that uh, one of the longtime church members, Nancy Clark, had passed away. And one of the things I thought of immediately was Nancy was someone who had this kind of conviction, a kind of quiet conviction. She's not someone who, like most people in the Midwest, she's not someone who would be talking constantly about Jesus this or Jesus that uh, or, or wearing her religion on her sleeve. But she was deeply motivated by her faith. And I had some very interesting and in-depth conversations with her about it. And she was so committed. There was something that drove her. know that the people around there will miss her. One thing I like about churches, churches draw people in who have conviction. They're looking for something deeper. That is one of the things that continues to inspire me about places like FCC. At its best, people are individuals with conviction and therefore they become salty individuals. Individuals who the way that they live and what they say, they can affect and flavor the world around them. Now, one of the things I, from my love of history and my study of history, one thing that jumps out at me most again and again is the impact of particular moments to really change things. Moments indeed can be salty, just like phrases or people. When you look at history, it's, it's remarkable how things are going along and then all of a sudden one moment is a defining moment for an individual, a defining moment for a country, a defining moment for an institution. Moments become of critical importance. I think of Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln was a standard state legislator in Illinois. He was in the state legislature for 20 years. He was a Whig in a state that was mostly Democratic. And, as they did, he rotated in to be the congressional representative for one two-year stint. In Illinois, the Whigs sort of traded off to see who would be the congressman, the one Whig congressman, uh, to Washington. So Lincoln spent one term, rather unremarkably, in Washington in the 1840s. The rest of that, he was just a, he was a, your standard state legislator. Until 1858. And in 1858, Abraham Lincoln decided to run uh, for the U.S. Senate seat against Stephen Douglas. And Stephen Douglas was one of the leading senators in the United States at the time. Now, Lincoln did not have much chance of beating Douglas. Again, this is a solidly democratic state. He was not likely to win, but he ran anyway. And the big issue of the day was the expansion of slavery, and Lincoln debated him all through Illinois. And what's key is those debates were recorded and published around the country. So two years later, when it became time to select a presidential candidate for the Republican Party, they rallied around someone that didn't have a big background, so people weren't angry at him for one thing or another, but he was known for one moment. He was known for those debates, and therefore people could get behind him. He had the courage to stand up and make that moment and seize that moment. 
And that moment became a salty moment that changed everything for him and for the country. Think about Paul Revere, a silversmith. Someone who is devoted to the patriot cause, but he's remembered for one moment. One thing that he did. We live in an interesting time in our society today. A time where uh, a lot is changing. There is a chance for us to have our moment as a congregation in the next several years. To really make an impact, to be salty. We have a distinctive voice in this community. We have the courage to seize that moment. I would love it. I mean, right now, this upcoming week, on Thursday, on Thursday, they're having hearings in the Senate on Senate Bill 6. This is a bill that would punish institutions that have non-discrimination policies relating to bathrooms um, and the use of bathrooms and specifically for transgender individuals. Uh, one of the things that I've, uh, as part of the Faith Leaders Coalition, I've written an editorial that I hope the Chronicle will publish this week. Uh, but it's an attempt to stand up and say, hey, this is something that we can have a voice on. I would love it if people in the community of Houston said, oh, that church, First Congregational, oh yeah, that's a church that stood up for transgender rights. And then another issue comes up, and you say, yes, that's the church that stood up for that. These different moments will have an impact on being able to flavor community around us and make us known in the community. And Jesus says, after he says, you're the salt of the earth, uh, he says, but if saltiness has lost its taste, uh, you know, what use is it? Now, it's like, it's like Jesus, actually, like sodium chloride can't lose its taste. Sodium chloride is sodium chloride. Salt doesn't, doesn't degrade over time. But salt can become adulterated with other things. Salt can become mixed and mixed with other elements that actually does mean it's not very effective for flavoring. So what Jesus is saying here is this is, this, is this a way for our saltiness to be unadulterated? When I think of the context for FCC, we're a church that seeks to grow. But if we grow for growth's sake, we're missing the point. The goal is for us to be able to be salty, to be able to spread our message and focus on that, and I believe that if we do earnestly, that growth will follow now, I went to a school, uh, school in Boston that was an old school place. And the headmaster that I had was this, you know, legendary figure. And when he arrived at the school in 1975, this was a time of big changes in the country. And most schools at that point, most independent schools were going co-ed. This was an all-boys school. Most schools were trying to do different inventive curriculums and things like that. And when he arrived, he said, no, we're going to stay in all-boys school unbelievably unpopular at the time. Uh, he said, we're going to stay in all-boys school. He said, also, we're going to stick to our classical education. We will require a Latin of everybody, um, and we're going to do things the way that we've always done them, and we're going to do it as well as we can. Also, we're going to remain a small school, because that matters. And he went out and he raised funds and dedicated as many funds as he could to making the school ha- a, a, giving the school a needs-blind admission policy. He's like, our priority is to make sure that we can get the best students we want. So what it meant was when I was there, our facilities compared to our peer schools were paled in comparison. You go, we'd visit other schools on, you know, on athletic contests, and they'd have the fanciest this and the fanciest that. Our wrestling team, when I was a kid, we, we, we wrestled in an old boiler room. They literally put up pads in an old boiler room, and that's, that was our junior wrestling room. 
Uh, when we wrestled, we had old-school wool uniforms. Every other team in the league had light gray uniforms. We had these old-school wool uniforms. But the thing about the school was that we had a sense of who we were, and we were proud of it. We knew we were a different place. We knew we were a different school, and we embraced that. We were proud to go out there and wrestle and be like, yeah, we've got crappy uniforms, but let's wrestle. See who can win. There was a certain grit to it that gave us respect in the league and gave us a certain amount of pride ourselves. School is a very salty place. Now, you are the salt of the earth. That's a declarative statement of Jesus's. Look around you. Look at the other salty people around you, this salty place. Can you go out and flavor the world? Can you keep your saltiness unadulterated? If you do, I know we can make an impact. Thank you.